Greetings and welcome to episode 52. You have made my day by clicking on that little triangle that points to the right to tune in for another episode about all things movie-related, past, present, and future. Regardless of whether this is your first time listening to this podcast or your 52nd, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to give this a go. My name is Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. This particular episode is going to take you back to the year 1959, sort of a crossroads when it came to the breakdown of what was called the old studio system. Pretty much meaning that little by little, film content was pushing the boundaries when it came to anything objectionable. And let's face it, nine times out of ten, at least back then, objectionable meant one thing primarily, anything sexual. But in a decade when Marilyn Monroe's on-screen image, not to mention her calendars and Playboy spread, reigned supreme, things were going in a direction where there really was no turning back to the way that more traditional audiences might have preferred. Tastes were changing, and ideas of what was acceptable on screen and what wasn't were evolving. It'd still be a good decade before a film rating system was put into place, that would come in 1968, but there were signs of things to come with the two Oscar-nominated comedies from the year 1959 that we're looking at, Pillow Talk and Some Like It Hot. We'll get into all of this and more, but before we do, let me first say that as of this recording, it's Sunday, May 15th, and here in Massachusetts, we are in the 80s for the first time this calendar year. I was talking last week with somebody at work, one of the custodians, and he commented on how it's finally beginning to warm up. He said that he can always tell it's getting warmer when the dry mop doesn't slide across the linoleum as easily. He was a little apprehensive about what it's going to be like in the building since once the humidity comes, there's no air conditioning. Can't say that he's wrong. It can get pretty brutal, especially on the second floor where I am. But, you know, some like it hot. Thank you. And if you've never seen Pillow Talk, or some like it hot, and you're looking forward to maybe giving them a whirl, then hey, go you. But if you just heard me say the year 1959, and subsequently in your head screamed in anguish and apprehension to yourself, then just remember the words of actress Lauren Bacall, who wisely, but wisely, said, It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. In order to fully get the one-two punch that these two films had on 1959 audiences, you need the full story of why there was so much caution, as well as caution thrown to the wind in the years leading up to them. And that said, we'll begin with a little bit of film history that I think you'll find pretty fascinating. Spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both Pillow Talk and Some Like It Hot. Then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for both. Then we'll wrap up with the poll results and the trivia segment involving all of you listeners. First, a little bit of film history. As far back as the silent film era, movies were not always innocent. There were some silent pictures that were, shall we say, randy and saucy. Rewind 107 years ago to 1915's The Hypocrites, also known as The Naked Truth, a 49-minute long film written and directed by Lois Weber. This rather artistic motion picture had parallel stories. One about a modern preacher, or as modern as you can be in 1915, and the other about a medieval monk killed by a mob over a nude statue that, in its own abstract way, represented truth by way of nudity. The statue was nude, not the monk. This is the flick that's said to be the first to have full frontal nudity in a non-pornographic film. It appears courtesy of an American actress by the name of Margaret Edwards. You can watch the film, and Ms. Edwards, in all of their glory on YouTube, since The Naked Truth is in the public domain. But Lois Webber wasn't finished yet by God. The following year, in 1916, she co-wrote a 65-minute silent film called Where Are My Children, which is also in the public domain and on YouTube. 
This is the story of the prosecution of a physician, not only for his client's death after he tried to perform an abortion, but also for sending booklets about birth control through the postal system. The DA finds out that his own wife secretly helped her high society friends, as well as the daughter of their maid, obtain and pay for abortions. You can imagine how some people were shocked and appalled at this pair of plucky pushes of the cinematic envelope. But wait, there's more. Real-life scandals involving Hollywood stars, Labor Day weekend, 1921. Silent film comedian Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, so named because of his girth, was pattying in a San Francisco hotel over a few days, a drinking binge with some friends and guests. And one of the guests, a young woman by the name of Virginia Rappé, passed out drunk. She ended up suffering injuries, and she did end up dying. He was accused of forcibly taking advantage of her. Three trials, three hung juries, then trial number four, he was acquitted. But the damage to his career was done. Another scandal to come out of Hollywood during the years of Prohibition was the discovery of the dead body of a bisexual film director, William Desmond Taylor, by his own butler. Taylor had been shot to death and was found in his living room. Stories of his affair with an underage actress surfaced, and her mother became a suspect, though nothing was ever proven, and to this day, the case remains officially unsolved. These two situations are just a snowflake on the Mount Everest of Hollywood scandal and corruption in the 20s that had decent moral folks throughout the nation shaking their heads and ready to take down the cesspool of corruption known as the film industry. Political groups, religious groups, heard stories of drugs, murder, gambling, adultery, and cue the entrance of a 42-year-old Presbyterian elder and Postmaster General Will Hayes. As a high-ranking government employee, he held some political influence, once the federal government threatened to step in and regulate film content, the film community sat up, listened, turned to each other, and said, Oh shit. The government said, Clean up your act, and the studios picked up their mops and brooms. The Hollywood powers that be turned to Will Hayes and wooed him to California to become the head of the newly formed Motion Pictures Producers and Directors of America. Say that five times fast. It was also called the Hayes Office. You want a tasty morsel of trivia? As Postmaster General... Hayes was making 12000 a year. As the head of the Hayes office, he began making 100000 a year. The president of the United States at the same time, a paltry 75000 a year. But you got to keep in mind that this was all in 1920s dollars. Anywho, in 1927, a set of rules was made official. It was called the list of 11 don'ts and 25 be carefuls. You cannot make this shit up. Google it. It's for reals. Among the don'ts, nudity, profanity, misogynation, otherwise known as interracial romance. Make of that what you will. Three years later, the guidelines were somewhat revised in 1930, and they were renamed the Production Code. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but I'm never going to get over this one. The revisions were co-written by a Catholic Jesuit priest whose name was, wait for it, Father Lord. You cannot make this shit up. Google it. It's for reals. The general principle of the Production Code was, and I quote, no picture shall lower the moral standards of those who see it. Among the revised guidelines, quote, Ministers of religion may not be comic characters or villains. No impure love may be shown as attractive or beautiful, or in a manner which might arouse passion, seem right or permissible, or reduced to comedy or farce. And my personal favorite, the nude or semi-nude body may be beautiful, but that does not make its use in the film's moral. Glean from that last one whatever ye may. But here's where they screwed up. There were no penalties for violations, no reinforcement. 
So for a good number of filmmakers, they just flew in the face of the almighty Will Hayes by just simply keeping on making the films they wanted to make. Nudity, sexual innuendo, violence and gangster pictures like James Cagney's The Public Enemy rolled on and on. And 1930's The Divorcee, which got Norma Shearer the best leading actress Oscar for playing a woman who decides to get even with her bed-hopping husband by sleeping with his best friend and then proceeds to hop from bed to bed with the frequency of a cheap hand radio. And these movies raked in the cash, courtesy of eager audiences ready for whatever forms of titillation that could come their way. But then, the studios went from defiance to compliance. Because in 1934, the Catholic Church formed the Legion of Decency, which threatened boycotts of movies, preached from the pulpits about Hollywood's inherent immorality, and spread petitions around to parishioners like nobody's business. I mean, there's a lot more to it, but the studios agreed to a $25,000 fine and no public screenings for each code violation. And this was how it went for the next 34 years until the film rating system of 1968. And these 34 years are what they call the golden age of Hollywood. You had your Clark Gables, your Ingrid Bergmans, your Humphrey Bogarts, your Catherine Hepburns, your Spencer Tracys, your Betty Davises. And you had naughty behavior continuing behind the scenes, but now the studios had 20 million publicists and public relations experts to control the publicity. The golden age is when the studios operated in what was called the studio system. This means that the studios controlled everything about their employees, their personal and professional lives. If you were an actor, you signed a contract with one studio and made films only for that one studio. The contracts could be as long or as short as the studio heads wanted. An actor may sign a five-year contract, or a director may sign a three-picture deal. The studios controlled your publicity. They had the right, if they wanted to, to quote-unquote lend you to a rival movie studio, and they would pocket most of the profits. They told you ahead of time what to say in interviews. Sometimes they even altered your personal information to make you more appealing to the public. They might release a false year of birth to the media to make you a few years younger. They might change or have you change your name to make it sound less quote-unquote ethnic and more catchy. May I give you Exhibit A? Lauren Bacall's real name was Betty Joan Persky. She was of Romanian Jewish heritage. Get the picture? If a married actress was seen with another man in a restaurant, for example, the studios would squash any potentially harmful publicity. When that bisexual film director that I mentioned, the one who was shot in his own living room, William Desmond Taylor, a drug user, studio heads frantically removed any incriminating evidence of narcotics before the police even began examining the crime scene. Even the beloved James Stewart of It's a Wonderful Life and Hitchcock's Vertigo and Rear Window, whose sexual orientation was called into question early in his career, was emphatically told by MGM studio head Louis B. Mayer to pay a visit to the studio brothel to prove that he enjoyed the company of women, and Stewart obeyed. The size of it is that the studios were treading water very carefully, much more carefully, because they did not want bankable stars to lose their appeal or to have any scandals affect their box office popularity, because it all comes down to the almighty dollar. But that began to break down by the 1950s, by the time that the likes of Marlon Brando, James Dean, and Marilyn Monroe began to grace the silver screen. Music probably had a hand in that as well, courtesy of Elvis's hip swivels, as he spontaneously combusted at every performance like the hunk of hunk of burning love that he was. So now it's 1959, the year that saw the release of this episode's two films. First up at bat, Pillow Talk, which premiered in New York City in October of that year. It went on to be nominated for five Oscars at the 32nd Academy Awards, including a nod for Doris Day for Best Leading Actress, and a win for its screenplay. After sitting through an opening credit sequence with the most annoying song not to come from the Mariah Carey Christmas album, the film opens with a close-up of Day's leg as she sits on the edge of her bed in her slip. 
She goes over to pick up the phone, and we're treated to a three-way split screen. Her, another woman being wooed, and smoldering stud Rock Hudson doing the wooing. He's sweet-talking, he's singing, the woman being wooed is quivering like a bowl of jello, and Doris is doing all she can to keep her lunch down. What we have is a deceptive, slimy mattress in the form of tall, muscular hunk Rock Hudson, and an independent, career-oriented modern woman who does not suffer fools gladly in the form of Doris Day. Their characters have never met, but they share the same party line. Every time Doris Day picks up the phone, he's on it, reassuring his latest flavor of the month that he's only got eyes for her. Then these two characters end up in the same nightclub one evening after a, a really disturbing scene where she and her date are in the front seat and he's not taking no for an answer. What's even more bizarre is that it's all played up for laughs as she threatens to tell his mother. And incredibly, in the original New York Times review of the film, critic Bosley Crowther wrote of the actor playing this character, quote, Nick Adams, as a wolfish Harvard senior, almost steals one sequence from Miss Day, end quote. But Mr. Harvard finally backs off, and she reluctantly agrees to have one more drink at this nightclub, where he proceeds to pass out on her, but not before Rock Hudson at the next table, who has overheard their conversation and recognizes her name, so now he knows who she is, but she doesn't know him still, begins a big game of deception that forms the backbone of the plot. To screw with her head and to try to get her into his bed, Hudson pretends to be a naive, gentlemanly Texan, with an aw shucks kind of demeanor, and she falls for it. As far as other people in the cast, there is solid support from both Thelma Ritter, who, as Doris Day's maid, is her usual deliciously sarcastic wise-ass, and Tony Randall is the very droll but lovesick client of Doris Day, as well as Rock Hudson's college friend. For its time, Pillow Talk was seen as bold and daring in its not-too-subtle portrayal of male promiscuity, female gullibility, and marriage as the happy ending for women, no matter who they are or how fulfilled they feel in other areas of their lives. It's probably one of the best examples of the quote-unquote sex comedy, as these kinds of films from this generation were unofficially dubbed. The dialogue and some on-screen visuals were deemed sophisticated, for lack of a better word, meaning they were aware of what they coyly implied. Something risque and body, laughably tame by today's standards, but there it is. The thing is that what's daring and titillating in one era does not always come across the same way later on. I already mentioned the scene with the Harvard senior in the car with Doris, but beyond that, New viewers today might be turned off by the number of jokes at the expense of gay men, single career women, and a running gag that serves as the film's punchline that's rooted in gender identity and transitioning. If that's your cup of cappuccino, bottoms up. That doesn't mean to say that the film is without some good moments, though. Like I said, Thelma Ritter is great. Tony Randall plays neurotic and high-maintenance the same way he would years later in the sitcom The Odd Couple. And some of the musical cues at key points in the story are pretty amusing, over-the-top bonk and boing sound effects straight out of America's Funniest Home Videos. It's not a film that takes itself seriously at all, so if certain kinds of dated humor don't bother you, you might be happy that you gave this brightly lit, splashy, technicolor comedy a look. And now it's time to swivel in another direction to fix our gaze on another sex comedy from the same year. This one starring Marilyn Monroe, Jack Lemmon, and Tony Curtis, directed by Billy Wilder. Some like it hot. This one takes place in the late 1920s. It's a combination of sex comedy, parody of the gangster genre, Marilyn Monroe vehicle, and showcase for the comedic genius of Jack Lemmon. And to a reasonable, but lesser extent, Tony Curtis. The film opens with a cop chase straight out of a gangster flick. Criminals who are smuggling alcohol versus the cops up and down the streets of Chicago, up and down, up and down. We're then brought to a funeral home that has a speakeasy in the back room, until Lemon and Curtis. They're two jazz musicians playing in the band. 
their roommates down on their luck. Bills up the wazoo, all these debts. The little money they do have, Curtis insists on gambling with. He's got sure winners in mind, and predictably they all lose. They eventually find themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time, in a parking garage to pick up a borrowed car just as there's a gang shootout that they witness. They manage to flee, but not before the shooter and his cronies see them. So now they're marked men. In a desperate attempt to get the hell out of town, they accept music gigs with an all-girls jazz band disguising themselves as women named Josephine and Daphne. If any of this seems trite or overdone, keep in mind, this is decades before Tom Hanks did this in the sitcom Bosom Buddies, or Robin Williams was Mrs. Doubtfire. On the train on their way to Florida, where the band's scheduled to play, Josephine and Daphne meet Sugar Kane, that's Kane with a K, played by Marilyn Monroe in one of her finest comedic performances. Lots of great facial expressions from Jack Lemmon, crackling dialogue, on-target psych eggs loaded with double entendres that score a bullseye. Again, the undeniable is that a lot of the humor in this film has been imitated to death over the years on God knows how many rip-offs and TV sitcoms and whatnot. That might make some first-time viewers say about this film something to the effect of, yeah, it's fine, but it's nothing new. Just keep movies like Tootsie and Hairspray and other cross-dressing movie characters out of your head, and it is worth the watch. Tony Curtis as Josephine is amusing and has a few great moments as well, even though his character starts off as the the same kind of manipulative, deceptive, sweet-talking womanizer that Rock Hudson is in Pillow Talk. But what separates them is that once he falls legitimately in love with a character I won't mention here, he sacrifices a considerable amount for her benefit. And even though the romance begins with him pretending to be somebody he's not, just like Rock Hudson in Pillow Talk, she does the exact same, unlike Doris Day. In other words, they're both fucking with each other's heads. So if there's any lesson to be gleaned from this by anybody looking for romance in life, apparently the film's message is, aim low and lie. For me, the show is all Jack Lemmon's to steal. I've seen him do both drama and comedy, and he is really at the top of his game here. He's obviously having a great time with all the goofiness, which comes across in his performance. I mean, yeah, some may say it's over the top, but the whole movie is. That's the tone, so it works. Marilyn Monroe infamously created a lot of problems with this production, but granted, she had a lot against her from when she was born. A mentally ill single mother, getting bounced around from grandmother to neighbor, a failed marriage to the boy next door in order to have a stable family life. By the time she was an established movie star, she had a reputation for being unreliable, and this film was no exception. She was pregnant during much of the shoot, but sadly miscarried, which only exacerbated her depression, which was already an issue for her. Pill addiction, missed cues, forgotten lines, conflicts with Tony Curtis, a troubled marriage to playwright Arthur Miller. There's a scene where she's supposed to enter a room and face a dresser to open up each drawer one at a time. Her line was simply, where's that bourbon? She flubbed it, take after take. Where's the bottle? Where's the bonbon? Director Billy Wilder even had the line written and taped to the inside of each drawer, but she still was not getting it. Obviously a sign that something was not right, but at the time, the general reaction was that Wilder had enough. In the end, that line, where's the bourbon, was added in post-production. Once they finished shooting, she was not there at the customary rap party. Whether that was her choice or not is up for speculation, but she and Billy Wilder did not pack company. But the camera loved her, and the final product they ended up with is an enjoyable fast that got an Oscar for costume design, and additional nominations for Best Director, Leading Actor for Jack Lemmon, Cinematography, Art Direction, and Screenplay. With all of that said, let's forge ahead now to the next segment, the -the behind-the-scenes fun facts. So proceed with the knowledge that details from both movies may include plot spoilers and the endings, so spoiler alert now. Let's take care of Pillow Talk first. Number five, 
Enlisted in the U.S. Navy at the start of World War II, Rock Hudson, whose birth name was Roy Shera, sailed out into the Pacific underneath the Golden Gate Bridge in 1943. Ironically, Doris Day, a professional singer at that point, had a hit in her hands with the ballad Sentimental Journey, a song that spoke to many servicemen during the war years. It was this very song that played over the loudspeakers as Hudson's ship sailed off for the Pacific. He later said, quote, she had the whole ship in tears, including me. Number four. Hudson's first impressions of the screenplay of Pillow Talk were not favorable. He initially turned down the film allegedly three times, considering it dreadful and racy. He was also nervous about doing comedy, an area that he really hadn't yet explored in his acting career. But Doris Day would later say, quote, I felt he was shy and very sweet. I was aware of the chemistry between us, end quote. And he eventually agreed to do the film. Number three. When the film proved to be a smash hit, Doris Day began a five-year streak as America's number one motion picture box office star and fans swooned over Hudson's screen persona of the charming, dashing, naughty boy. A second collaboration between the two was inevitable. Doris Day recalls, quote, Right away, we said, we have to do another one, end quote. They reteamed in 1961's Lover Comeback, which is beat for beat the same exact story and premise as Pillow Talk. Financially, it was even more successful than Pillow Talk. Their third and final one was 1964's Send Me No Flowers, which was the least successful of the three. They tried something different to their credit. They played a married couple in this one. But alas, with this third trip to the cash cow, there was no milk. Number two. According to ClassicMovieHub.com, in the diner scene near the end, the restaurant patrons were supposed to deck Tony Randall, who would fake a reaction to the blow and slide down unconscious in his seat. But during filming, the actor playing the one who punched him underestimated his own strength and accidentally knocked out Tony Randall for real. The shot wound up being so good that the accidental knockout is the one shown in the film. And number one. Towards the end of the movie, Rock Hudson forces his way into Doris Day's apartment, picks her up from her bed angrily, carries her down an elevator, through the lobby of her building, and outside across the streets of New York City to his place. After many takes, Hudson's arms were hurting him, so they created a sort of sling, which held Doris Day in a crate-like device and hooked over Hudson's shoulders to evenly distribute her weight. As for some like it hot, try these on for size. Number five. Casting could have been's. Names thrown around for the roles of Joe slash Josephine and Jerry slash Daphne included Danny Kaye, Bob Hope, Anthony Perkins, and Jerry Lewis. But director Billy Wilder quickly moved to Tony Curtis for Joe, and his choice for Jerry was Frank Sinatra. But according to screenwriter I.A.L. Diamond, quote, Billy made a lunch date with Sinatra, and he went and waited and sat there and sat there, and Sinatra never showed up. He stood Billy up, end quote. More than likely, Billy Wilder would not have reacted kindly to such a challenge to his authority, and Sinatra was out. Number four. The costumes. Lemon and Curtis wanted good clothes. Lemon says about being put in makeup and high heels, quote, We were very cooperative, but we did put our feet down when we wanted better dresses. They wanted us to select off-the-rack stuff from the costume department. End quote. Curtis stood by Lemon in solidarity. <laughs> saying, quote, I wanted a new design address of my own, not one of those used things. I went to Billy and I told him Jack and I wanted Ari Kelly dresses too. He said, okay, end quote. Ari Kelly was the costume designer who outfitted Marilyn Monroe with all of her gob. Number three. 
some like it hot, was condemned by the Catholic Legion of Decency, which called it, quote, morally objectionable, end quote, and said that it, quote, promoted homosexuality, lesbians, and transvestism, end quote. This was one of the few American movies ever given a condemned rating by the Legion. Additionally, it was banned in Kansas after United Artists refused to edit the love scene between Curtis and Monroe, while in Memphis, a censorship board restricted viewing to adults only. Number two. Marilyn Monroe wanted the film to be shot in color. Her contract said that all of her films were to be in color. But Billy Wilder did convince her to let it be shot in black and white when costume tests revealed that the makeup that Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon wore gave their faces sort of a, a green tinge. Or as they put it, ghoulish. And number one, the now famous closing line, well, nobody's perfect, was originally conceived as sort of a stand-in for whatever Billy Wilder and I.A.L. Diamond could come up with later, which eventually turned out to be nothing. Wilder later wrote his own epitaph, inspired by a similar line, quote, I'm a writer, but then nobody's perfect, end quote. And with that, it's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. So the poll question for this episode, if you had to pick one, would you rather share a patty line with a total sleaze as Doris Day does, or hide out from bloodthirsty gangsters in disguise across state lines as Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis do? On my public Facebook group Silver Screeners, same name as this podcast, there were eight votes total, one for hiding out in disguise and seven for the patty line. Over on Twitter, two-thirds of the votes went for the patty line, with the remaining third for the disguises. So, in aggregate, it looks like the patty line with the sleaze is the lesser of two evils. A big thanks to all of you who voted. I really appreciate the involvement. And keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram at FrankMendoza1974. Or you can email SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. And now it's time to head on over to the trivia segment. In each episode, there is a different trivia question that is directly and sometimes indirectly related to the movies or the people in them. Anyone and everyone's invited to take a crack at it. I don't want to take the liberty of announcing both first and last names, just in case it makes anyone feel uncomfortable. So that's why I always do first name and last initial. But if you say otherwise, then full names it is. You get a shout-out as well as a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized greeting. And it does not matter when you send in your answer. does not matter what episode you're listening to, if it's farther back or if it's the most recent one. Answer any trivia question at any time. You'll get your meme and shout-out. And if you're a creator, if you write music, if you design websites, if you're a podcaster, a writer, if you go all Sinatra and you're a puppet, a popper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn, and a king, if you've been up, down, and over, and out, I'm always happy to give your stuff a shout-out. So just say the word. So last episode, Chris from the podcast The Movie Psycho joined me to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, and we'll be collaborating again without a doubt. The question then was, Vera Farmiga, who plays Norman Bates' mother in the prequel series Bates Motel, is also well known for her portrayal of real-life paranormal investigator Lorraine Warren in what series of horror films? Patrick Wilson plays her on-screen husband, Ed. The first was released in 2013 and focuses on the allegedly true story of a haunted farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island. And the second, which came out in 2016, takes Lorraine and Ed over to Enfield, England to investigate a supposed haunting there. 
2021 saw the third one go in a slightly different direction, a murder trial where the defense was demonic possession. Name this series of films that way back in episode 6, I talked about briefly along with 1982's Poltergeist. And the answer is... The Conjuring. A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting goes out to former and future guest Liz, who joined me a few back to talk about the 1984 and 2021 versions of Dune. Also, Chris from the Movie Psycho Podcast. And no, there was no cheating, because I threw in the trivia question post-production. Thanks to both of you for your guesses, and to anyone else listening, interaction and fun is the name of the game, so please, play this trivia segment anytime. How about now, with this week's question? When Marilyn Monroe famously sang Happy Birthday, Mr. President, who was the president she was singing to? Was it A. Richard Nixon, B. Dwight Eisenhower, C. John Kennedy, or D. Lyndon Johnson? Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode or any episode that you've listened to, hit me up on my socials. Once again, that's FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screen is on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And that's all for episode 52. Thank you as always for taking the time to listen. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And I'd be eternally in your debt if you could take just a second to rate or review this show on Apple, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's always a help in terms of boosting the show's visibility. And I'm always happy to get honest feedback, and I'm always open to any suggestions for future episodes. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of an unexpected telephone call I got today on my potty line from a certain 20th century icon who wants to wish me a happy belated birthday and my reaction to it. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Happy birthday.